Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome our online audiences uh, that are watching our live stream. Um, today, we have a live stream with three authors. Uh, they are coming to us from three different parts of Europe, uh, all at the same time. This world is uh, kind of shifting so rapidly in this way. Um, and I'd like to remind everybody that we've done over 500 of these programs since we started uh, doing our online live streaming at the beginning of COVID-19. Welcome, and uh, I'd like to tell you about what we're going to talk about today. Today, we have the three co-authors of a book called Framers, which uh, explains why even in the time of AI, artificial intelligence, that humanity is still going to be required to live human life. Um, that that uh, we have an advantage that uh, no technology will ever replace. And uh, that's a very nice optimistic thing for someone to say nowadays. So I want to tell you about the, our, our co-authors. Um, there's Kenneth Couquier. He's a journalist for The Economist. Um, he's a host of Babbage, and he's, of course, one of the co-authors. He's coming to us from London. Welcome, Kenneth. Um, we have Victor Meyer-Schoenberger. He's a professor of Internet Governance at University of Oxford. He's coming to us from the Austrian Alps near Salzburg. And we have uh, Francis de Vericor, who is a professor of management science at ESMT in Berlin, and he's coming to us from Berlin. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us. Uh, it's evening where you are and morning where we are. Um, and first of all, um, did you use the concepts of framing in how to present your book? I see that you have the nice little example of uh, thinking outside the box, but. Did you use your own concepts in, in, in the, you know, presenting your book to the public? Who would like to take that one? Francis? Or Ken. Yeah. <laughs> you were about to I'll, say. I'll, why don't I start and then I'll let Francis take yes. over. So we yeah. absolutely did. In fact, what's interesting is that we didn't always at the outset, I mean, at least for myself, I found myself, I was, it was a process of discovery as books often are in which you're working and by working on it, you're discovering new things and therefore figuring out where things apply and where they don't. In writing, of course, if you're writing about counterfactuals, you're thinking about what ifs and you're thinking about, well, how do we want to tell this story and why is the story not working? And so all throughout, it's sort of like John Nash thinking about, you know, you know about numbers when he's trying to sleep. So too, the book is always coming into myself and, and coming into all the authors and therefore mm -hmm. taking a frame and applying it, taking this representation of a mental model and putting it towards the task of writing a book was definitely a part of it. You, you can't avoid not doing that, but I'll let the others also answer. I mean, I, let me just add also that we define early on the constraints, so this is, which is part of framing, the constraints we wanted to impose on ourselves when writing the book, and especially when we choose the examples and how we wanted to also structure, especially the four, four first chapters, we had a very deliberate approach to constrain ourselves um, in, doing the, in, in doing that. Well, first, uh, one of the big constraints on this is to have three co-authors. This is very, I mean, two co-authors, yes, three co-authors, that's, you know, you're pushing it, uh, the ability of humanity to get along with each other. So you want, <laughs> you want to explain a little bit about, I mean, you've done this before, I think, so how, how did you come to, you know, approach this as a co-author group? I had had the pleasure of working with Ken before uh, on uh, Big Data, a book that we did eight years ago, and that was quite successful. Um, uh, so uh, both of us knew in a way what we were getting into. Uh, I've been friends with Francis uh, for many years, 
and we needed somebody who really is, was an expert in decision-making and decision science mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, has, uh, has been doing it and doing cutting-edge research in that field for many years. So we, we brought Francis on board. And then as we were talking through um, what we wanted to do, um, we realized uh, that the book was changing as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so as we were trying to kind of frame the book and frame our understanding of what framing is, um, the, the frame changed as well, uh, and we adopted it. Uh, and uh, as Ken is so fond of saying, we didn't write a third, a third, a third, uh, mm -hmm. but every one of us wrote 100%. Um, and then we tried to amalgamate it. And uh, I hope that once you read it, it is almost impossible. It's, it should be impossible for you to think, oh, this was written by Ken or this was written by Francis. Well, I, I think it's very well uh, amalgamated for anything like co-author. You couldn't tell who was uh, writing the, the uh, chapters, which I thought was very unusual. Um, now, this might be slightly embarrassing, but is there a George Harrison in the group? I mean, is there somebody who thinks that the <laughs> that Paul and 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 uh, <laughs> takes too much to credit? But no, I'm just kidding. It would be great if you if you were in that position, right? <laughs> that you had to that you had to be the George Harrison in the group. So well, I would say um, there's there's probably there's a there's a Pete Best, right? But to take yes. that analogy, and that is if you go into the acknowledgments, you'll see like several scores of names. And the fact is. Um, a lot of research went into the book, and we got a lot of great uh, help from some extraordinary scholars and people in the field. Um, mm -hmm. When you when you set out with an idea, there is a sense of creativity that you need to have, and it just it just gestates in you. It gets fertilized, however, when you present them to others and you start collecting more information. So whether it is Regina Barzilai, who we interviewed for it, or Jennifer Doudna, mm -hmm. the Nobel Prize winner, who we interviewed for it, or Alyssa Milano, the, the actress who sort of... who sort of put forward this idea of the Me Too movement, you know, mm. on Twitter and, and sort of spurred it that way, um, as well as we have a nice vignette about the Israeli hostage rescue mission in, in 1976 of Antebe. And we interviewed one of the commandos on the raid. So mm. for all of these reasons, by doing that, we have a, we owe a debt of gratitude to some extraordinary people who have helped create this, the birth of the book. Why don't we start with... And Tebby, that's a, you know, you just brought it up. Um, and uh, this wasn't what you were talking about, but it, it surprised me because I had never read it before that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's brother, older brother, died, was the only Israeli that died in that. And I think we're in the middle of a crisis in Israel and in uh, Palestine again right now. And I think it's very valuable to, for, for as many people as possible to know that his brother died in these circumstances. And I'm sure it uh, influences his decision making. So. Maybe talk a little bit about that and how framing made a big difference in how they went about solving that, that issue and pulling off something that's very, very hard to do. Great. Why don't I start and I'll let my co-author sort of pick up the baton. So when the hostages were taken in, 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 on June 30th, 1976, on a flight that was supposed to be going, I believe, from Paris to Tel Aviv, that um, Israel had a view, I'm sorry had, to had a policy. I'm sorry to interrupt for just a second, but... but I think for our, especially for our younger audience, I think a little explanation that, that these kind of hostage, uh, what, what terrorists used to do is not blow up planes and everything, but they would hijack them, take them to another location, not kill any, because people 
some people just don't know that that was a really big thing in the 70s and 80s. I'm sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. In fact, we need to. So we need to let, frame let me dwell. That's really good. Let me dwell on that for a minute, okay? Yeah. It's not what you asked, but I think it's really relevant. What you have just done, George, is you have just reframed terrorism for another generation, okay? Mm -hmm. A lot of people are going to wonder, how is it that America was unprepared for 9-11? Mm -hmm. And the reason why is that we had an entire security infrastructure at airports that was geared to terrorism in the 1970s, 60s, mm. 70s, and 80s, really, mm. um, in which terrorists would go onto a plane, they'd be carrying explosives or guns, hence you x-rayed things, mm. right? And then as soon as they announced themselves with a gun in the air, right, and probably storming the cockpit, the very first thing that you were trained to do as air traffic control was to find a safe place for the plane to land to begin the negotiations because mm -hmm. these were hostage negotiations. They needed fuel, they needed food, they needed to fly to a safe destination. They probably wanted political prisoners, they wanted money, what, they wanted notoriety. The idea of taking the, the vehicle, the aircraft, and turning it into a missile, and flying that missile, and turning that missile into an explosive missile, into a building to, de to destroy everyone on the plane, as well as everyone in the building, was not part of their mental frame. That was a different mental model of how terrorists could work. So the whole security infrastructure was so wantonly inadequate that the doors that were used to secure the cockpit were basically the same sort of lock as the doors to secure the bathrooms, the lavatories on planes, right? right? So this is what framing is. So it's a mental model. It's a representation of the world. We do it all the time. It's a simulation that goes on in our minds. It's how we conceptualize things. Now. So what was going back there? I'll go very quickly because I sort of I'm filibustering, you know, mm -hmm. about terrorism. But the, the short version is this. In, in 1976, when there's a hostage rescue mission that needs to happen, not only do they pose the military planners counterfactuals in which they ask what if in terms of designing what the re rescue mission should be, but they need to identify what are the constraints that are hard and unchangeable versus what are the ones that are malleable. It turns out when you fly in, whether it's in the cover of darkness or in broad daylight, doesn't really matter. That was a malleable constraint. But what was really important was the hard constraint that it had to be a surprise attack. Because of course, if the hostage takers knew that the attack was coming, they would just kill the hostages. And so the mm -hmm. whole purpose of a rescue mission wouldn't take place. We use that example to show that it's not just simply counterfactuals that matter, which are a part of a frame, but that the constraints matter as well. I, I think um, what was what was very very special about about this situation is that the the hostage were taken away far away from Israel, mm -hmm. and the the constraint that Ken is are, is talking about were were very hard. They were distance. Um, they were also they could not carry. They had to fly over. They could not carry many weapons, many many people. So within this highly constrained environment. They had, as as Ken described, they had to play with some some constraints uh, to to relax some, to be able to uncover new possibilities and new alternatives. And one of which, for instance, was to say, well, they will land normally on. It was the the hostage were parked on a on an airport, and so so uh, air, aircraft could land, and so they will land on that airport, but they will carry a car that um, the, the, the army there were, were using so that they could 
slowly, discreetly approach uh, the place where the hostage were. So mm -hmm. that apparent creativity, which is an act of creativity, was, is really the result uh, of identifying the right constraints we can play with, play around, and come up with new solutions. And this airport, this airport was in Uganda, and Idi Amin was the was the dictator at the time, and he was a, a very unusual dictator uh, even for that time, um, and uh, totally probably unpredictable about what he was going to do. Uh, what is what is also important, I think, uh, George, uh, and you mentioned that at the beginning, um, is the fact that as the uh, Entebbe hostage um, crisis ended. Uh, with, uh, with with this raid, this very successful uh, mission, um, it it also created a, 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 a signal, a feedback signal, to um, the Netanyahu, the uh, brothers, but particularly to Bibi, who, uh, who who had his brother getting killed at the end or towards the end of the of the raid, um, and uh, for Bibi, it was clear that. Uh, having a very strong message and being a strong player uh, mm -hmm. has a huge advantage. Um, mm -hmm. It reinforced this view. Um, so in a way, uh, once we have a frame and it is successful and it works, it kind of reinforces itself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that may have influenced his decision-making later on in his political life, even to this day. Yes, I think that's, Got to be accurate. Um, so we'll we'll move from that a very uh, dramatic uh, uh, incident that may have been forgotten by lots of people. Um, but uh, let's go to the current day then the COVID nineteen crisis. And you you use the example of New Zealand and um, uh, Britain framing the issue differently and having different outcomes. And I, I think that that's a really good example for everybody to to uh, talk about what you mean by this idea. Great. I'll, st I'll start again because I'm based in Britain, and so it's, it's a live issue for me. But of course, Francis and Victor will, will, will take it away. So at the outset of the crisis, uh, all of the political leaders had the exact same data. They had the same information working off the same data base. But way, the way that they framed the issue determined the options that they saw, the actions they took, and the outcomes they got. So we can take a look at the, this beautiful case study of Britain versus New Zealand. So in Britain, you had Boris Johnson, who framed the issue, framed COVID, as not too dissimilar to the seasonal flu. In fact, mm -hmm. he went to a hospital to visit COVID patients and shook everyone's hands, right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, and was, showed, you know, the sense that he was sort of impervious to it. He framed it, and that defected the, the, the options they took and the decisions he made. Now, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand took a different view. She saw the same information, but she said, actually, this isn't the seasonal flu. This looks more like SARS, in which we have to go for not mitigation, as Boris Johnson did, as the UK did, but elimination. We have to get rid of it entirely. We just can't let it fester, let it burn through the population. That'll kill many of us, and we can't let that happen. She was framed on SARS because, of course, SARS had affected the Asia-Pacific, not New Zealand, but the region uh, yeah. about 15 years earlier. And so she was sort of... was saw elimination as the frame that she needed. It was SARS. And so by doing that, by June, the UK had suffered one of the worst deaths in the world as a death rate, whereas on the very same day, New Zealand declared themselves COVID-free. And we now know, the research is now in, that those countries that framed it in terms of you know, SARS and elimination and chose an elimination strategy 
did better in terms of protecting the economist, uh, uh, protecting the economy, uh, protecting civil liberties, and had better health outcomes than those countries that had a different frame of the seasonal flu that chose a mitigation strategy. They fell down on every metric. Mm -hmm. And I think what is very, very interesting about New Zealand is that, in fact, they had both frames. They had the flu frame available and they had the, the, the SARS frame. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that they looked up to uh, the UK in the beginning and they started to apply what the UK and the US and WHO at the time was doing, even WHO, and tried to frame it as, as the flu, as can describe. But, but very fast, because they had these other alternative ways of framing the situation, they shifted as early as early February, if I remember correctly. And, and then the rest is history. As Ken said, it, it paid off on all dimensions. I happened to have been in Beijing for a conference uh, in 2003 and was the last conference that was closed before, you know, everything shut down for the SARS thing. So that, of course, influences your, your, your thinking about this when it came out uh, all these years later. And I, I also remember what, you know, when I came back to the office, nobody really wanted me to come to the office, um, you know, so, so it, it's, it's that that kind of experience just like you say with framing and and whatever alternative experiences you have it really helps you make a a, a different set of decisions and um your book is all about how crucial those decisions are um it just so happens this morning i was talking to someone about you you know before um doing the show and uh, he said oh framers said uh, the wright brothers are the ones that come to my mind immediately and, and you talk about the wright brothers so why don't we why don't we uh, talk about the wright brothers and and what they did just, just moving the propeller from water to air, I think, and, and uh, rethinking the thing. Because as you said, there were a lot of smart men working on this project. Um, and, and these two, not amateurs, but certainly one wouldn't have expected them to come up with it, but their methods were interesting. So go ahead. Uh, George, uh, why don't I take this? Uh, and what is important, uh, and I, I hope we make that point very clearly in the book, is that um, there's two different mechanisms by which we can see the world or have a perspective. One is if we are in a frame and something dramatically has changed, a new context, a new situation has arisen, we may switch to a different, may have to switch to a different frame. Um, but then we also make the argument that a lot of times when there is not a fundamental change in circumstances or in the goals that we, are, uh, we want to attain, we can stick uh, with the frame that we have, because the frame actually is a friend. Uh, the mm -hmm. frame helps us see and elicit better options, counterfactuals, as, as, mm -hmm. as Ken and Francis mentioned. And that is precisely what the Wright brothers did. The Wright brothers didn't come up with a new frame. They actually stuck in an existing frame, a frame that, um, that was uh, well known at that time. It's the frame of aerodynamics and aerodynamic updrift. But they just stuck to it, and they just said, okay, a, a frame of aerodynamics means that we have to create a wing that creates, uh, that, that leads to aerodynamic updrift. We need to select a location where there is a, a constant breeze uh, that gives us additional aerodynamic updrift. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, they said the propeller isn't like uh, uh, like a sword uh, uh, or a, a propeller in the water um, it really is a, a wing that rotates and, and mm -hmm. creates uh, aerodynamic updrift that way as well. So we create the propeller like a rotating wing. Uh, their propeller, the Wright Brothers propeller, was actually 
um, an order of magnitude more efficient uh, than other um, uh, early fly flyers' propellers. Uh, and that was because they stuck to the frame that they were in. And mm -hmm. they understood that the frame of aerodynamic updrift is a friend because it guides their counterfactual. It helps them understand what good, actionable, valuable options are and differentiates them from bad options or suboptimal options. So in that sense, the Wright brothers, as your colleague rightly pointed out, were not exceptional reframers. They were exceptional framers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, so there's a lot of really good examples. And now let's get into the meat of your book, which is you divide it into three different uh, concepts. And you've used these words already, but maybe we'll, we'll go at, at them one at a time so that everyone understands. You talk about causality, you talk about counterfactuals, and you talk about constraints. And, and it just so happened they all start with a C, which I thought was very... <laughs> Which is really that's, freedom, that's one of, right? of the con the constraints we put on ourselves. One you of the constraints, yes, exactly. Like we wanted everything to start with the C. <laughs> I could tell when you when you switched the word restraint a few times, and then no, 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 I have to go back to constraints, right? Because it starts with the C. <laughs> so, who would like to, to talk about causality, and 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 how that fits in? Go ahead, Francis. You're on screen. Well, so so basically, let let me talk about the three Cs first to okay. to say that. And I think this is very important. We hear the word framing and frames all the time. And we have his sense that we know it for good reasons, because we, we are framers. We use frames all the time. But what we try to articulate in the book is that there is a science behind it, right? There, there is, there is, it's not just a fluffy concept. Mm -hmm. And the three Cs are the backbone of that concept. And so the first one, which is causality, which means that in any frames you're using, you're making causal assumptions about how the world works. And our brain is designed for that purpose. That is, we cannot help not see causality. And sometimes we are totally off. But, mm -hmm. but most of the time, I mean, not sometimes we are off, but it, it's a very powerful thing to have because without his ability to see causal link, we won't be able to predict what can happen in the future. We would mm -hmm. be really in a, in a wild randomness of events without having control or sense of control of what can happen. So, yes, we, we see causality all the time. Yes, yes, we can be wrong very often. But without that, that bias, if you want, I mean, I, I mean it in a positive sense, without this, this bias towards causality, we won't be able to act, control, predict. We won't have agency. Um, so, so that's how I would, yes, summarize mm -hmm. causality, if that makes sense. And that gives us an opportunity to also abstract and generalize. Um, so we use the sort of causal insight to create actually a template, a causal template. And, and that uh, is a, a huge advantage and has given us an evolutionary advantage compared to other living beings um, who are, uh, have difficulty sort of abstracting and generalizing. Um, uh, and uh, we can do that. That helps us in learning. And by the way, what is really interesting, as we explain causality to somebody else, we actually learn more about it ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a beautiful mechanism that evolution created so that we get nice dopamines, we get nice positive feedback. Uh, when we explain something to somebody else, we benefit, but the other person, of course, benefits too. Mm -hmm. So evolution has created a mechanism whereby uh, causal explanation uh, and communication um, is something 
that is very dear to us and very important to us, and that helps uh, uh, us um, think in causal templates all the time. Yeah, I think you, you explained that in your book very clearly about, about how if you explain something to somebody else, you end up understanding it better yourself. And this is used uh, by students all the time in, in school. They, they try to make good students, uh, you know, tutors for the ones that are two years behind them. But that also helps the student that, that does that kind of thing. Um, and this, this, I say, goes way back. Um, you, the, Socrates, the, the uh, dialogues of Plato are all about, you know, the sophists think that they know what they're doing, but they really don't know what they're doing. And if I ask them enough questions, they're going to realize they don't know what they're doing. And, and then I'll be smarter, they'll be smarter, and, and we'll move on. I mean, that was, that was the idea. And I think, um, so you're, you're focusing on it now as something that's, that's been in our, at least the Western cultural idea about how to move forward for a long time. Um, so counterfactuals. So, so who would like to, to uh, go into that? Because counterfactuals, I mean, it's, it's, it's like imagination uh, in, in a way. Um, I mean, okay, I can, a great way I, I to can. describe it. I can start, and uh, um, because this is the C's of the three that I, I like the most, as my co-authors uh, know by now, I'm, I, they are tired of me uh, repeating that. But um, okay. contrafactual is basically what I think is one of the most powerful elements of, of frames, because it's what helps you go beyond the data you may have, the situation you may have. It helps you, as you said, imagine what you cannot even observe. But it's not wide imagination. So that's, that's what is very key. That's why it has a name. It's called counterfactual. It's against the fact, or maybe I should not say that, but above, beyond the fact. And so what is very special about this type of imagination is that it's very controlled. It's very deliberate. It's not random. And that's what makes them uh, efficient. In fact, each time you, you make a decision, when you have to choose between A and B, when you engage in these deliberations, you project yourself into the future. If I choose A, what's going to happen? And you see how the causality kicks in now because you need to have a representation of the world as you simulate, and you literally simulate that in your mind, like, like a computer simulation or a movie. You see, you, you imagine what can happen. It's guided by some of the causal templates that, that Victor talked about. So each time you decide, you have to engage in this type of simulation. And if you do it well, you have a better chance to foresee what can happen. But it's not only when you decide, it's like you, you sometimes need to imagine alternative realities to know how the world works. And one of the examples we give is, for instance, global warming, um, mm. that, that we need to imagine an alternative reality without humans to compare what's going on here uh, today and what will happen if we were not there. So mm. this, this, this ability to go well beyond the, the few information, the few data points we might have, the now, is extremely powerful, and that's something that, that we can do and that animals cannot do as well, and machines certainly can't. Yeah, it's uh, amazing if you just look at the last, say, 150 years of, of how we perceive where the Earth is in the universe, um, you know, and, and, and how, how enormous that has changed because we keep making imaginatory assumptions, and then based on those assumptions, look for data and, and put together things so that we can read the information coming from the stars and, and know how far away it is and so on. I mean, that's, that's all our imagination. Um, I, I, uh, I have a concept in my work on Plato's theory uh, called the imagination's horizon. Um, and, and what I say is that you've, you've, you've got your imagination and, and because of the size of your, or the activity of your imagination, you can see so far, you can see to the horizon, but you can't see any farther. But 
as you move towards that horizon, of course, you're, you're, you're further along, the horizon moves even further out. Um, and so you never get to the horizon, but the more you understand, the more you're, uh, you go, the more the horizon moves out. And, and one of the reasons I used that idea was uh, if you're talking about ancient um, explanations of the earth and, and, and what's going on, it doesn't seem like anybody could imagine that whoever was in charge was anything other than a tyrant king, you know, uh, just because they didn't have, know anybody in power who wasn't a tyrant king. Um, and therefore, the description of whoever was doing this was a tyrant king. And I think that's a limitation of our imagination's horizon. And now that we've had some experience, not a whole lot, but we had some experience of people with power that aren't tyrant kings. <laughs> so I think we, it makes it easier to move past that. But that's just just, just an aside. But it's the same same concept. Um, so it is the same concept. What's interesting, let me just pick up on that, is to say mm -hmm. we're at an interesting period in history right now mm -hmm. in which a lot of we have these global challenges, these problems that we're not addressing, that in some cases are completely existential. And you would think that we have moved to such a place that we no longer see a tyrant king. In fact, if anything, we look at a state that is a benevolent state that actually in some ways perhaps owes something to the citizens who are there. And so mm -hmm. there's a sense of an, of an entitlement of what is the state going to do for us? I mean, Kennedy inverted that. And, and the injunction of John F. Kennedy was for us mm -hmm. what we were going to do for the state. But it's interesting because a lot of people who feel like they're being canceled are, are talking about rights. But of course, the rights that are being violated are not the, are the rights of a university administrator, not of the state. It's not really censorship in that way. And so we do have to think, and I think one of the reasons why we wrote our book is to force a conversation in society to have us think about the future in a new way and to ask ourselves, how can we frame issues better by applying you know, counterfactuals constraints, causality to it, or if need be, if, if the existing frame that we're in isn't sufficient, how can we reframe things so that we can actually finally resolve and answer some of the, the problems and the challenges that we face that we couldn't prior with our prior mindset? So that is the conversation that we want to have. And that's what we're sort of forcing on society by producing this book. And the counterpoise to that is of course artificial intelligence that presumes that it has the AI that has the answers and that we should just give up on the human project altogether and we say no 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 <laughs> we need to double down on what we do really well but, mm -hmm. which is framing and reframing AI the machine's not going to do that for us we have to do it ourselves yeah it's great to show that there's some something that we do that that machines will never do but in addition to that it seems very um, psychologically in uh, uh, revealing that, that so many people in, in the AI field would like to just uh, leave their lives behind and merge with some, uh, you know, uh, computer. Um, and somehow that that would be a better way to live. Um, we, we have difficulties being human, but that sounds worse. It's, it reminds me of people who say, uh, we, we've, we've messed up this planet so badly, you know, let's go to another planet in another place and start over again. Said, how can you possibly conceive that it's, easier to start over than it is to maintain this one in a way that's smarter. It's got to be 1% of the work to stay here and do it right, you know? <laughs> and, and we're just going to go there and we're going to mess up the other planet because we're yeah. still who we are with our the frames that we are, that we're faulty frames. So instead of having environmental degradation on planet Earth, we'll have the equivalent of environmental degradation on Mars. Thank you very much. <laughs> not going to work. What we do need to do is, in this instance, maybe reframe how we participate in the world, what our economies look like. And there are absolutely people who are going in that direction. 
but there are people who aren't there yet. And although we say that there's no such thing as a, a bad frame, only bad framing, it is incumbent on us, those of us who have a, maybe a better frame, one of sort of sustainability for the planet, to find a way to have a convincing way to, it, to take our frames and put it into the mix so that this frame is the one that more people adopt. Now, one problem there is that you can see there's a clash of frames, right? And there's mm. going to be a hurly-burly, there's going to be a tension here. Typically, the answer is that, that we don't want tension, that we don't want conflict, that we sort of retire back from it, and that we should all think the same thing. And we don't say that at all. That mm. view in society is one that we actually find reprehensible in mm. the same way that Hannah Arendt found that this unitary notion of standpoints, of ways of seeing the world was reprehensible. What she wanted was what she called a plurality of standpoints. And what we say, picking up on that, because we cite and we have a nice, very beautiful vignettes of Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher, is actually, no, we want we want pluralism, a pluralism of frames and of framing, so that these, these frames that are intention actually do get a chance to clash and tussle, and that together from that interaction, we can come up with the right frame that fits the situation that we're in. Well, I, it was a great example, and it also, uh, you know, she personally lived that example because she was able to have a relationship with Martin Heidegger, um, who, who obviously was not who you would think would be a good friend of hers. And I, I think that that's one of the crucial things is that, um, and I love that about your book, that you're, you didn't say we're, we have to have world peace and everybody be exactly the same. No, uh, when, we, when we're all individuals, and so many individuals doing different things, it's not crucial for everybody to think the same. We're not, we don't all have to join the singularity. <laughs> we, we can all be different, um, but we have to just agree on a few simple principles and maybe we can get to that, you know, sort of principles of what it is that, that we have in common. And then we wouldn't always be saying, you know, because there's no, there's no solution to say, every one of the major civilizations, say there's five or six or seven that have a billion people believing in it none of them can take over the other one and make everybody, uh, you know, join theirs. It's not going to happen. That's, but, but we can all agree on, on some principles of trying to change the whole way that people look at it. You can say, for example, well, you don't treat your women the way you, we think you should treat your women. And, and then they say, well, you don't treat your women the way we think you should treat your women because you allow them uh, too much freedom and not enough protection. And we allow them more protection and not enough freedom, that, that kind of issue. Um, and I think it's, it, it'd be much easier if we just said, okay, let's have a new frame. Uh, everyone sort it out. If you don't like where you are, allow them to leave. You know, the old Greek, you know, uh, city-state idea of just exiling the people who don't fit in as opposed to, as opposed to you know, another approach. Uh, we have a lot of immigration already. It wouldn't be that hard. But anyway, um, so uh, let's, uh, let's talk about some of your other examples. You have so many really good examples in, in the book. So what was your favorite one, Victor? What was the example that you thought, you know, gave a really, really good insight into this concept of framing? Well, um, uh, as you said, uh, we, we do have uh, so many examples, um, but, but I want to uh, wanna give a shout out to a, uh, a young entrepreneur, a young female entrepreneur from Africa. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, what, uh, what, what she and her colleagues did there uh, in West Africa was rather remarkable. They looked at the situation there and the fact that electricity uh, oftentimes uh, goes down at night. Um, uh, people uh, can't study, can't read. There is also a security concern because you don't have uh, electricity, you don't have light at night. 
you can't call somebody, you can't charge your phone, you can't call the police or so. Um, and uh, one way of fixing that, the classical conventional way, the classical conventional frame is to uh, fix the grid, fix the mm -hmm. electrical grid. Uh, but that's not uh, likely to happen for a number of reasons, including um, tight budgets and so forth. So she and her colleagues said, maybe we could devise um, a, a kind of solar-powered lamp with a battery um, that is charged during the day, that gives light during the night, but also has like um, a, a charging port where people could uh, recharge their um, mobile phones and other devices. Um, and, and thereby decentralizing, essentially, the grid, decentralizing electricity uh, generation, less electricity distribution. But then she said, but that's not enough. Uh, we don't just need the technical side. We need the social side of things, the organizational side of things, the financial side of things. We can't just sell this thing because people don't have the money to purchase this, uh, this uh, solar-powered lamp. Uh, so she took um, a page from um, um, mobile phones and said, um, we give the lamp out to whoever wants it uh, on a monthly fee. And the monthly fee is kind of an installment. And once uh, they have paid for the lamp for full, then they own it. But that mm -hmm. gives everybody electricity right away. It mm -hmm. has an immediate effect on hundreds of thousands of people out there who have safety, who have light at the night, who can mm -hmm. kids who can study and so forth. And at the same time, over time, they then begin to own and therefore take over uh, the, um, uh, the infrastructure in a way, the, the decentralized infrastructure. That's mm -hmm. kind of reframing the issue of electricity, at least to a certain extent. And mm -hmm. it's done by this entrepreneurial young woman from Africa. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a wonderful story of how powerful framing can be. Yeah, I agree. That was a great, great story. How about Francis? You have a, you have um, a... I, I, I love them all. And, and I also love the one we, uh, which didn't make it to the book. But no, I mean, from, from the book, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I like the Ebola story and, uh, uh, because it's also it's a prequel to what we have experienced we are mm -hmm. we have experience with with covid and what we need to realize is that in in many countries uh maybe not new zealand as we talked about but we were only dealing with bad choices in the end we had to choose between health and the economy or uh, between our liberties and health those where we were stuck in in bad trade-offs and the reason we were stuck there is because at the onset of that epidemic some of our governments framed that outbreak the wrong way. So, so it, it tells the story about how framing, in fact, determine the set of alternatives you will have to deal with in the future. Mm -hmm. Ebola, which, if you remember, happened five, six years ago in Africa. It was a prequel because it's, it's very clear what happened. It's, it's very uh, localized. There's no politics involved. And what happened is that there were very few cases of an Ebola outbreak. Ebola was, in some sense, easier than COVID because people knew the virus. There were no vaccines, but they knew what it is, what it was. And you had two organizations on the floor, on the ground. You had the World Health Organization, and you had Doctor Without Border, which is a humanitarian organization. They had the same expertise. They had both organizations had a lot of experience with epidemics. Both of them were trying to help Guinea where the few cases occurred. And more importantly, they had exactly the same data. How come then the, the WHO said 
it, it is a, a pandemic we can control locally. It's something we know how to do. We don't need to shut down the economy. It's going to be fine. We did that before. And with the same data, the same expertise, uh, and the same objective, you had another organization to say, no, 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 no. What the, um, uh, Doctor Without Border was seeing is that this is going to be a big thing. Unfortunately, mm. WHO did not listen to, to a Doctor Without Border, and it turned out that these few cases end up um, killing uh, thousands of people in Africa. Mm-hmm. So this is really, for me, it's like you have here really the power and the danger of misframing a situation in a very clean way uh, in mm-hmm. terms of the setup and uh, also showing that misframing can kill people in the end. So for yeah. me, it was very telling. Well, uh, uh, politics uh, against science or politics with science. I mean, we, I think we can use India as an example right now, too, because the, the so we're going to take this approach, and the first results were pretty good, um, but now uh, they're terrible. And and uh, you know, it's 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 as if some people believe that the virus, you know, their their frame of the virus was that it's something I can control. I can almost talk out of what it wants to do, or it won't bother us be- for this particular reason. Instead of just treating it as a as a as a non-thinking in that sense. Uh, entity that's going to be spreading because that's all it wants to do and when we can either deal with it or not deal with it so i would add, um, I would add yeah, one yeah. other thing to that yeah. yeah just add one other thing to that because it's such an interesting and such a vital issue to get right which is that we think we're talking about the virus that's the term you use why wouldn't right. we be talking about the virus but the virus is mutating it's changing right mm-hmm. and the variants have different properties than earlier variants of, of the virus, the pre-mutated virus. So the COVID-19 of April 2020, that was created a lot of problems for adults of a certain age, over the age of 60, particularly men, but was pretty much fine. Not such a problem, not a big problem at all for kids. Doesn't look the same now. Newer variants actually are much more transmissible and much more contagious among kids who are under 15. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the the mental model and the and the options that we saw and the decisions that we make and the outcomes that we get, therefore, for COVID-19, for the virus, that presumes one thing, if it's something else, if it's a different variant, might be different. And we have mm-hmm. to actually adjust our mental model to change it, to recognize that we're not talking about the same virus. We're talking about something else. And of course, our institutions haven't done that. So we still have the same conversations, presuming, for example, that it's not contagious among children. But whoa, hold on a second, it is. So I think we're going to find out that the variant that's in India had different properties as well. And so that the precautions that we took weren't adequate, but we had to change our mental models in order to address the reality that we have. We have to become better framers. I just read an article this morning uh, that that, uh, said that their latest research on the vaccine is for all of coronaviruses that they'll come up with one that will take care of all, including the common cold. Um, now, they, that probably won't happen right away. But that's, again, reframing the issue and saying, is there something we can do that, that covers all of this, which would, which would put an end to the question about variants, right? Uh, l- let me uh, add one more important element here. Uh, and in, in all of this, I think we, we should not forget um, that um, all of these um, arguments are within certain frames. 
So, uh, for example, we have had the, the virologists and the epidemiologists providing us within their frame uh, uh, ways by which to uh, uh, minimize or avoid contagion uh, and the spread of the virus. We have had uh, intensive care physicians who, uh, within their frame, uh, suggested how we can reduce the number of cases. But then we also have economists who come in and say, and, and, and people who look at the social situation of, of millions of families and say, but what if the economy is suffering really badly and people lose their jobs and then they uh, develop mental problems or then, then there is, they stay at home and there is uh, domestic aggression uh, and domestic violence happening. And so what we must understand is that in most cases, it's not an easy choice. It's not like a, a, um, a, a, an obvious silver bullet of which frame to pick and what we want. We need to be very careful about the goals that we want to achieve and in which context we are in. Um, it's not at all clear what, you know, even, um, even in hindsight, what the right frame is at any given point in time. Mm. Um, and so that... I think is a very strong message that in our society, we need a pluralism of frames. We need a wide variety of frames to coexist and to battle it out if you want, to have mm -hmm. a, pub, a robust public discourse in which we engage each other in discussion and um, discuss it out, talk about it, rather than assume that our truth, our frame is the only possible right one. Fortunately, we have the big frame of science, which uh, theoretically says that, that there will always be another theory that's better, and we'll, we'll keep moving for something better, a better frame, a bigger frame, that kind of thing. Now, most scientists even uh, find that uncomfortable because it's much more comfortable to stick with what you learn when you're younger and so on. But, but uh, even so, that's the big framework in which uh, we can move towards exactly what you're talking about, which is the pluralism. Yeah, and scientists sometimes should be able to um, to practice pluralism of frames more easily. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reality is, if I can speak for my own profession, uh, mm -hmm. not so much. Not so much. Well, we are we are used to you know it's the reason why we're authoritarian is because we want the world to conform to our ideas rather than <laughs> the other way around. You know, <laughs> so. So uh, democracy is new, uh, science is new, and it hasn't really gotten into our hearts yet uh, where we realize it. it's just like democracy. I said, uh, you know, when, when people have an election, there's no, nobody says, well, uh, the guy I voted for didn't win, but I'm so happy that the majority gets their way. You know, how, how many people emo emotionally react to an election like that? You know, it might be 1% or something. And those, those are the ones who understand democracy and get it. So... So uh, we're, we're, we're on our way, but then we've got, we've got the frames for it, but everybody has to kind of get used to the, the, the new frames. Uh, one of the things that you talk about um, is that all frames are okay, except for frames that deny other frames. Um, and, and I wanted to, to, to talk about that. There's only one kind of bad framing, and that's you, you bring that up near the end of your book. There's the frames that deny other people the right to think uh, freely and, and, and so on are problematic frames. That's a lot... You don't go into it, but that's a very high percentage of the frames that are being used. So, <laughs> who would like to talk about this? I mean, let, let me let me just yeah. uh, exp 
maybe explain why, uh, with an example, while we, as I think Ken mentioned that already, that there's no such a bad frame except these exceptions you mentioned. Right. They are only bad framing. Um, a simple example is is Earth. So you can you can frame Earth as a sphere. Think of it representing your mind Earth as a sphere or a sphere or as a plane, as something flat. Mm-hmm. And people make fun of people who some people make fun of people who think that you know the flat Earth frame is is scientifically not valid. But the truth is that most of the time you're using the flat Earth frame. When you, when you walk around, when you take your car, you don't think as Earth as a sphere because mm-hmm. it's useless to you. It's not the right representation for your goal. As, as Victor mentioned, if your goal is to go from A to B in your, in your town, uh, you don't want to think that you're traveling on a, on, a, on a sphere. You want to think of it as a plane. So depending on your goal, depending on the context, any frame could be superior than your own. And also circumstances may change. So your frame may be working now but who knows, maybe the world will look different. And having at your disposal a vast range of frames, then you can try different solutions. The way New Zealand, again, did with, with COVID to try different frames to see which one would work better. So that's why we claim that at least there's no bad frame except one, there's bad framing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to say that, that, that uh, only those frames which restrain other frames should be restrained. There's a little irony in that, um, but uh, but uh, it, it really is a uh, um, um, very useful socially right now, um, because obviously, uh, and and maybe I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Um, but it, it, there's a obviously you you talk about emotionalists at one end and and the hyper rational uh, at the other end uh, that that you know are are in favor of the AI situation. Um, and that the center is actually the place to be. But there's also uh, a large number of people who are just uncomfortable that other people are capable of having things which make them feel uncomfortable, make them feel bad about themselves, and so on. And obviously, for thousands of years, we've all been trying to make each other feel bad about them, uh, our, ourselves, and that's part of human culture. So it's kind of interesting to even be thinking about, about getting out of that framework. Um, but it, is, it reminds me that we're giving voice to a large number of people who haven't had voice before, and we're hearing what they're saying, which is, you make me uncomfortable. I, I think that's basically what it is. So yeah. we, we, while we, but we only talk about it from the point of view of how society has to deal with this issue. Yes. And, and George, if I may pick this up, I, I think there's uh, two important elements here. One is that we are actually um, uh, pretty narrow in our exception. So um, we say that we, we that there is only one kind of bad frame, and that is that denies the existence of other frames. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that a frame a frame can be critical of other frames, no mm-hmm. question, and that's perfectly fine. In fact, that's helpful. Right. Um, but if a frame denies that other frames exist, even th- that is the the telltale sign of a very dangerous wrong frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, when we come to the question of society and what kind of um, uh, society we want with respect to framing, we need to understand that what we argue in the book is not democracy per se. We don't argue for like votes and the majority frame gets to be adopted as the main frame. We argue for a pluralism of frames. And that is different. Um, uh, this is not liberalism. This is Hannah Arendt's 
uh, mm. view uh, of, of pluralism, um, of a society that is embracing, not just accepting, but embracing that other people have different views and may me, make me uncomfortable. That friction in society is, while it's costly, also something that helps us when the going gets tough and we face uh, huge novel challenges that helps us meet those challenges, come up with better solutions. So in a way, we are paying the cost of friction now as an investment mm. to provide us with resilience and the ability to deal with huge challenges in the future. And as we are a society that, that is looking at ever more efficiency, we need to understand that uh, if we are only optimizing curve its efficiency, we mm -hmm. give up on resilience. And the pluralism of frames is our insurance policy for an uncertain future. Uh, and that is why we're advocating for it. But didn't we just learn that in the pandemic? And I mean, it's really nice to have just-in-time delivery, but there are disadvantages to it under, the, under certain circumstances because you, you've increased your efficiency, but at the cost of your resilience, obviously. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, you also, in your book, you talk about how terrorists often look at, at, at um, this agility of, our, of, of mind or, or, or openness to different frames as being corrupt. That's corruption. And that having one viewpoint uh, is purity, um, I thought that that was a very interesting way of framing that that issue. And, and basically, you're saying here that that the, the bad framing of saying it's just one way of looking at things is based upon another framework, which is that there is some authoritarian in charge, and therefore we have to conform to that rather than that we're all individuals and, and therefore pluralistic. Um, that's a bigger frame, and of course, that authoritarian frame has been the dominant frame. For, for thousands of years, and, and, and this other way of looking at it is quite new um, or unusual. It, I mean, the cracks were made at different times, you know, in different cracks. But, but the you know, if, if we if we had to say that it was you know, the analogy was global warming and we were the Arctic Ocean, you know, the the, the, the melting is just starting. <laughs> <laughs> that, that authoritarian uh, you know way of looking at things is, is the ice, and the you know, it, it, it's it's just barely cracking. So. Um, so, uh, Ken, uh, if you're, you're, you know, how do you use this in your, in your work? You know, you're a journalist, um, you, you, you write, I mean, does anybody ever say, stop using that framework, uh, and, 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 and do something else or. So the, the first thing you should know is that when you write a book called uh, framers, that the, that pretty quickly, uh, you hear the term framing used by everyone all the time. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, that, and that's great. Uh, it turns out that it's being used in a, in a much more informal way than it's used in the social sciences uh, and mm. in the sciences and in decision science. So we sort of separate it in chapter one. We explain that although it's a quotidian term, the fact is we're, it does mean something very specific and we give people a guide on how to use it. The, I, I found that I was using it, uh, but I what I realized more interestingly was that Last summer, I was facing a challenge at work, and I really didn't know how to get out of it. It was just a really tricky thing of office politics of having. Mm. But actually, so I think a lot of people can relate to this, largely because an element of what I did, and I didn't actually, it was only in hindsight that I could figure this out, really depended on a lot of informal social capital and sort of conjoling and 
seeing people and what I call doorframe meetings, where you lean on the doorframe of someone and you mm -hmm. have a 30 second interaction with someone. And that just builds goodwill or it just lets them know that you're doing something so they're aware of it. And in a world of working remotely, if you lost that ability to have those small little porous interactions, mm -hmm. you could find yourself in a lot of trouble institutionally when you're doing things that other people don't know about or don't agree with, et cetera, and you haven't done the groundwork for it. And it's so hard to do because you can't schedule those things over Zoom, right? You can't like yeah. knock on someone's door and sort of with the PA and, and organize it because suddenly you're taking something that needs to be informal and you turn it into a formal sense. So and as I'm stewing on the- irritate people if you tried. <laughs> exactly. So, because these are small nudges, little course corrections of things. Yeah. And so, and usually relies on goodwill and sort of a shared sense of purpose. So as I'm, as I'm walking along London in mid lockdown, stewing on my, my dilemma, I just, I was struck by the fact that, wait a minute, I'm spending my nights and mornings and weekends writing this book called Framing. I'm dealing with this problem. How about I try applying the book to the mm -hmm. problem? And so sure enough, I did that. Actually, I took the three C's and very deliberately realized, well, what is the mental model that I'm in? What is my frame? How did I get that frame? What is it? What can I play with? What are the causal mechanisms here, right? What, what's the structure? Right? And then I looked at, you know, what if? What if this, what if that? And I, by playing with counterfactuals, I created a range of options and then I put, imposed constraints on it. I said, well, what can I adjust? Where am I actually thinking that this is a hard constraint when it's actually really a soft one? What if we were to do it this way? How about if that wasn't true? What would it mean then? And over the course of about an hour and a half, two hours, it was actually remarkable. What unfolded was the fact that I was seeing things in a particular frame, but if I actually adjusted it in different ways, I could actually, I saw that I had a lot more options than I really imagined. And actually all I needed to do was start implementing them and I could actually make better choices and get better outcomes. So the problem actually just melted away mm -hmm. like ice on a winter day, on a summer day, when I just started implementing the new choices that I made based on the new frame that I had. I'll, I'll end with this. There's one actual technique in from the book that I actually I do often now that I I'd heard of before, but didn't do before. And it's this idea of mental rehearsals. It's this idea of, of taking counterfactual thinking mm -hmm. very seriously. I love the idea in the research for the book uh, of, a, of, of a downhill skier, uh, a ski jumper, in fact, Olympian ski jumper, who regularly does the course, the training course, or actually the, 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 the actual course of the competition course, um, several thousands of times before the actual competition. And you're only allowed to do five runs, four or five mm -hmm. runs for an Olympic run. So how does she do it? She does it by actually rehearsing mentally in her mind and then going up through in these counterfactuals, the constraints, all of the different permutations and iterations of what could happen and how she would deal with it. And mm -hmm. in her mind, after you've done the same ski jump 10,000 times, you're the world's best expert on that ski jump, and she's going mm. to perform to the high sta highest standard. And that is how high-performance athletes do so well. And so I've been applying that to my interviews, to my writing, to my journalism, to my interactions with colleagues, sometimes to the events that I do uh, over Zoom uh, mm -hmm. with, with, with an audience. And I, I think it works really, really well. Uh, one of the things it does, besides going over all the details, is it builds your confidence that you know what you're doing, you know, and, and you're confidence going into something is, is a, a fairly crucial part of the outcome. 
Well, Francis, you, you uh, work in um, Berlin and you teach management science. How open are uh, businesses, uh, business leaders, to the idea of reframing things? I mean, I assume you must use this in your in your work in your consulting. Well, no. So, so sure. I mean, I, that that's that's when I'm not writing a book or not doing research. That's what I'm doing. I'm working with executive. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm teaching them decision making, and um, and you know, they they are there are two components in in what I'm teaching. I'm I'm teaching the the bad aspect of of decision making. Why why we are we are bad at making decisions. And I go that pretty quickly at the beginning to say, yeah, you need to be careful about all those biases and what's not. But really where your strength is, is your ability to first properly represent the decision problem you're facing. That will determine the type of decisions you'll be able to make. And then you use a counterfactual to try to do some sort of scenario planning if you want. Mm -hmm. And then when on all those aspects, then you can try to debias yourself to make sure that you are not influenced by by information that should not influence you and what's not. So, mm -hmm. so uh, and and the executives really loves it because they that's what they do instinctively in many ways. Uh, they just get trained to do it better. They train that muscle. They train that cognitive muscle, and then they apply that muscle to their problem in a safe environment, which is in the business school, where they can really do openly with their with their classmates counterfactuals and have an ambiguous feedback about what's going on so I, I see that it's a very very powerful tool that um, executives even CEOs um, mm. embrace and appreciate they recognize it I mean they because mm. good decision makers know that they do not know how to articulate it quite well right. and that's what the book does for for them to help them become even better at it yeah so that's my you know that's my bread and butter basically <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just like you say in the book, you know, if you uh, understand it better and can explain to somebody else, they'll understand it better, you'll understand it better. But when they do it and they can explain it, if the CEOs have to explain it to their um, other executives, they also are going to, as you That's said, right. articulate it better. That's right, yeah. So, Victor, you, you're in uh, internet governance. Um, and so I thought maybe I would leave the last framing for something that's influencing all of us, which is, you have these really huge companies that, that uh, in other times would, would try to be prevented uh, from the monopoly positions, or not monopoly, but almost monopoly positions that they're getting. Um, and do you think in internet governance that reframing that issue in some way, because monopoly, I hear people talking about, well, monopoly doesn't count in this case and stuff like that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you use your work in internet governance. And sure. you can mention and, and Google and Apple and so on. Yeah, and, and, and when we think about uh, those large uh, digital superstar companies, uh, a lot of people think about conventional mechanisms like breaking them up or, right. or, or, or getting, uh, getting them to stop certain behaviors uh, and whatnot. Um, and uh, maybe we should uh, imagine that there are other options available as well within, mm -hmm. within the frame. Um, and uh, that other option, for example, is that they... Uh, give access uh, to some of the data troves that they have uh, and, and, and open uh, some of the, the data treasures that they have to not just competitors, but to startup companies and small businesses and so forth. There is a, um, a, a precedent for that. Um, when AT&T became too powerful and was sued in the late 1940s by the US government for uh, monopoly behavior, uh, the consent decree in the middle of the 1950s uh, uh, put forward that that um, AT&T could continue its monopoly on the phone system, 
but it had to open the patents of Bell Labs, including mm -hmm. the transistor patent, and make it accessible to every company in the United States mm -hmm. uh, for free. Now, that was an enormous uh, knowledge subsidy to a new industry, to the computer industry. Um, it was access to knowledge that started or helped start a jumpstart Silicon Valley and the information age as we know it. Uh, that was a new frame then. We may actually take a page from history and, and broaden our conventional set of options that we mm -hmm. have uh, and maybe suggest rather than breaking them up, letting others use the fruits that they have collected. That's a great, you know, I mean, we're, we, we've run out of time, but that's a great way to finish up because I think that's using something in a totally different way. I mean, a lot of people talk about big corporations as, as disastrous, these international corporations across the world. And yes, they cause problems, no question. But, but in our pluralistic society, I think it's great that we have big organizations who are focused on making money and other ones that are governments that are focused on, on either controlling their territories or whatever, and other ones that are big charities and we have big religious organizations. And I think they all can influence each other in a way um, which we need. We don't want to get rid of all the big things in every field except for government. I don't think that's a good solution. And we're certainly past the point of allowing only the big institutions to be religious because that also causes problems. So. I think uh, if we rethink this a little bit, that's a great way to, to, to uh, you know, the same thing could be done in, in, in uh, pharmaceuticals and everything after a certain point. Um, they need to have the incentive in order to do the research, but, but there is a certain point, which is already true in the patent field. Um, as, you, as you said, it's, it's a great way to give knowledge out to everybody and share it in a way that then can improve everybody's lives. So that's a great idea. Um, and a great way to frame the end of a wonderful conversation about your book. Um, and so ends uh, another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you again. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.